Good evening. Good evening. You guys doing well? Good to see you all. As you know, the kids are having a great time downstairs. It's Calvary Kids Night, so we'll only be going through one chapter, chapter 25 in the book of Proverbs. Uh, This is an interesting chapter because it's an addendum to the book of Proverbs. Essentially, this uh, chapter, all the way through chapter 29, really includes Proverbs that were set down by Hezekiah's scribes. That is to say, these Proverbs in these chapters were discovered three centuries later, during a time of national revival, when Hezekiah was king. You can read about that revival in 2 Kings chapter 18. So the men that copied them also grouped them together and organized them by theme. And that will carry us all the way through chapter 29. But these Proverbs, they rely more on comparison, that is comparing things, finding things that are alike, versus contrast, which is finding things that are different. So the effect of these Proverbs is to compare things that are the same, generally, as opposed to things that are different, which is what we've seen for the first, pretty much for the most part, for the first 24 chapters of the book of Proverbs. But this evening we are in chapter 25 and we'll begin in verse 1 after we pray. Let's pray together. Lord Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Instruct our hearts, direct us as we look at each of these themes this evening. May we find the wisdom we need to live our lives not only for you, but to live our lives in such a way that we bless others as well and that we're blessed by you. And Lord, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So this evening, we begin, look at verse 1. These are more Proverbs of Solomon, copied by the men of Hezekiah, king of Judah. And so there you have the introduction. This is an addendum, 300 years later, to the original book of Proverbs. And we read in verse 2, it is the glory of God to conceal a matter. That is, it's a fancy way of saying God knows things that man can't figure out. It's the glory of God to conceal a matter. To search out a matter is the glory of kings. That is, kings are generally capable of searching out deep things. Not only do they have the time, but they generally have the wisdom. That's the idea. So as we read that proverb, we're learning in this section, verses 2 through the first part of verse 7, there's everything to do with authority and how we react or respond to authority, generally godly authority. But just saying this, we should show respect towards our authority. And verse 2 tells us to know our place, to know our place before God in humility and also before our leaders, because as we read here, it is the glory or the the majesty, the the, uh, authority of God to conceal a matter. He can choose to reveal truth or conceal it, hide it from some, reveal it to others, and of course to search it out, to look into it, to try to figure it out and understand it, is the glory or the authority of kings. So that's about, really, it, it kind of conveys or implies we should know our place before God and before authority. And then we read in verse 3, something else here. In verse 3, as the heavens are high and the earth is deep, so the hearts of kings are unsearchable. Now this isn't putting kings on the same level as God, but authority comes from God. God establishes authority. And there are truly times when kings are wicked and leaders are wicked. We know all too much of that in today's world, and especially in our country. But what we're talking about is God's appointed leaders, when God's appointed leaders are actually seeking, not perfectly, but at least legitimately seeking to please God and to serve others. 
And so here, this has to do with our leaders, our leaders' position, and their abilities to warrant a certain level of respect. You would assume, generally, that leaders come into leadership because they're capable. Sadly, again, we're not seeing too much of this in our world today, certainly not in our nation. But when a nation has leaders who are worthy of respect, it is important to realize what we're seeing here in verse 3, and that is, the heavens are high, the earth is deep, but the hearts of kings are unsearchable. That is, God knows the heart of a king and their authority, but man, we may know a little less. We may not be in a position of authority like they are, so respect is necessary, a level of respect for our leadership. Now, verses 4 through 5, this kind of addresses what I've already alluded to about wickedness in leadership, which we understand all too well. Notice this is very poetic, but it says, remove the dross from silver, that's the impurities, and out comes material for the silversmith. That makes sense, right? You get rid of the impurities, and now you have silver that's pure enough to be able to work into jewelry uh, or some other work of art. Notice here's the comparison. Remove the wicked from the king's presence, and his throne will be established through righteousness. So you see the comparison there. We're talking about silver. So what is silver? Silver is heated up, and they remove, they skim the dross off the top, and then the silver is pure. Well, it's the same idea. Remove the wickedness, or the wicked, from the king's presence. Take the wicked out of the king's presence, and his throne will be established through righteousness. So many times our leaders are affected by wicked people around them. And certainly in our world, there are very wicked people. So if you can get wickedness out of leadership, well, the throne or leadership position will be established through righteousness. And that is how a nation is established. That is... When we say established, what we mean is not just established, but made firm, made strong. Our nation needs to be reestablished in so many ways. The only way that's going to happen is to remove, like the dross from the silver, to remove the impurity, the corruption, to remove the wickedness from our leadership, and then we'll be established, made strong. But it'll come through righteousness, not through wickedness. Wickedness destroys a people. Righteousness exalts a people, as the scriptures teach us. Okay, so that gets us through uh, verse 5. And, of course, wickedness has no place in leadership or in leaders who serve others. Wickedness doesn't belong. It's one of the reasons we get so upset when we see it, certainly. Okay, verses 6 through the first part of verse 7. Do not exalt yourself in the king's presence, and do not claim a place among great men. It is better for him to say to you, come up here than for him to humiliate you before a nobleman. This really speaks to the thing that Jesus shared, if you remember, and I'll read it for you. In Luke's gospel, I really like this. It's, 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 in a sense, it's a proverb or a parable or a teaching that, that he shared with us in Luke's gospel, chapter 14, verses 7 through 11. I always think about this. I always think about this because it is such an important attitude to have regarding yourself, how you look at yourself, right? And what Jesus said is when he noticed how the guests picked the places of honor at the table, he told them this parable. When someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor for a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. And if so, the host who invited both of you will come and say to you, give this man your seat, then humiliated, you will have to take the least important place. But when you are invited, take the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he will say to you, friend, move up to a better place. 
Then you will be honored in the presence of all your fellow guests. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. That's a really good commentary on that proverb. What Jesus did is he took a very practical situation, a wedding feast. Now, you know how there's always better seats? It doesn't matter whether you're going to a show or you're going to a feast or you're going to someone's house. There's always better seats, right? There's seats that aren't as good, seats that are better. And if you're the kind of person that your approach to yourself, your ego is, I deserve the best seat in the house, eventually there's going to be someone more worthy, at least in the host's eyes, and you're going to be asked to take the lower seat. I have uh, gone to weddings and also to to repasses or funeral dinners uh, where, you know, when you walk in, sometimes I'm the first one there. And, you know, you have a choice, like, do you you sit closer to the front or to the back? And you think to yourself, well, if it was a family member, then I truly should be in, in the front closer. That's the appropriate place for me. But if I'm not... I go to the furthest seat or the farthest seat from the front. I, I, I figure it that way. I mean, you just want to be respectful. And don't think too highly of yourself. This is what this tells us. Not to do that. Not to think so highly of yourself that you exalt yourself, in this case, in, in Proverbs chapter 25, verse 6, in the king's presence. That is, you think of yourself more highly than you ought to. And you carry yourself in that way. Don't do this. Don't claim a place among great men. As it says here, it's better... For him to say to you, that is the king, to say, come up here than to humiliate or be humiliated uh, before a nobleman. That is, someone comes in uh, who's greater than you in in their station or their position or their authority. So all of these proverbs have to do with showing respect toward our authority. Let me say this. Ambition has no place in leadership. It has no place in true servant leadership. In serving others, ambition should not drive us. Do you seek great things for yourself, do not seek them. In the book of Jeremiah, we learn. Now, to desire the place of a servant, it's a noble task, Paul tells us. To desire that position of a deacon, which is a servant, or an elder, or a pastor, or a bishop, it's a noble thing to to want to do that, because the idea is you're looking to serve others, you know, you, you see these pastors, and, and, and it's a little bit of a pet peeve with me. I was a little bit more careful when I was younger to say some of these things, but now that I'm in my late 50s, I have no problem saying it. The minute I see a hint of ambition in a church leader, I want really nothing to do with that person. Certainly the people who are encouraged to be in leadership here and the people who will serve here, I'll tell you, know them all very well, and there's no ambition there. That we share. All of us are just looking to serve one another. If you come into this church and you have ambition to sort of climb some ladder that doesn't exist, you're not going to last very long unless your, your heart changes. But I have been around a lot of different church leaders, and you just see it. You know it right away. I mean, I worked in the corporate world for 20 years. And, you know, in the corporate world, it's pretty common to see somebody come in, and from day one, they're looking to advance. When I, I know how to recognize that, and you expect that in maybe a professional atmosphere. But when I see that in the church, I'm very turned off by it. Michelle knows this because sometimes we'll, we'll watch certain tapes and you'll see pastors talk. It's just the way they talk about their church and their ministry. They, they come off as very ambitious, and I'm immediately, I, I, I want nothing to do with them. They may be great. They may be wonderful teachers, fabulous to listen to. But when I see that character trait, I'm done. Because what I read in my Bible, you know, the Bible, Mark 10, 45, Jesus didn't come to be served, but to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many. That is the yardstick by which I measure leaders. 
And if I see something short of that, I'm not impressed. And so I'm just telling you that up front. I strive in my, in my heart to be a servant as God has called me to be a servant. I'm not saying I'm perfect, but ambition is not something that I find very attractive in church leadership at all. I unfortunately see an awful lot of it. And so I kind of stay away from that. So ambition has no place in leadership or in the hearts of servant leaders. It shouldn't be there. Jesus told us that in that parable. Also, the scripture attests to it. So yes, show respect to your authority. But if you're an ambitious person, you're actually not respecting authority at all. It's actually you're looking at that person and thinking, I want their position, that that wouldn't be a good thing. Amen? Okay, well, the next theme, and there are three that we're going to look at. The first was show respect toward your authority. The second is apply wisdom to all areas of your life. I think as Christians, sometimes we are very selective. I know I can do this, you know. The Bible says love your enemies, and I'm like, oh, that's cool, until I talk about one particular enemy or someone who I think is really wicked, and then, you know, all bets are off because I'm like, you know, I would call down fire from heaven if I could. And so we understand how James and John felt, you know. But God is merciful and compassionate. So I I tend to pray this way, Lord, may that person be so convicted that they humble themselves and give their hearts to you. And if they're never going to, take them out. Seriously, I pray like that because the evil they're doing to other people, right, the wickedness that others do to other people, I can't look at that and not be like, Lord, I want justice. Mercy first. If mercy and grace is rejected, then, hey, listen, you know, God knows. It says, judgment is his, right? Vengeance is his. He says, I will repay, says the Lord. I'm okay with that. And I pray for God to justly judge because I can't. In my mind, I'd wipe people out. That's just who we are as human beings generally. But I do pray when I pray for wicked leaders, I pray that. I pray that God would convict their heart, that they'd be humbled. And if they're not going to be humbled, that God would deal justly with them in his time. But anyway, we need to apply wisdom to all areas of our life. And so that means we got to take a principle, not just when we like to apply it, but when we have an opportunity to apply it in all areas. So sometimes people will be very good about how they treat their family, but then at work, they're not. They don't apply wisdom at work or at school, but they apply it at home. No, it's got to be across the board. And so we see here in verse 7, latter part, it says, what, have you, what you have seen with your eyes, do not bring hastily to court. For what will you do in the end if your neighbor puts you to shame? This is a, I mean, I love these proverbs in this section. For, for one reason, they're, they're, they take a, a little bit of thinking. Well, what is he really trying to say? You know, it's not as straightforward as some of the proverbs we've studied up to this point. This has to do with not rushing to judgment, jumping to conclusions. You know, how many times have we seen something, and maybe we've only seen the tail end of what was happening, and we assume that something else happened, and we really don't know. Because, you know, you just walked into the room and maybe there was a conversation for 20 minutes. You caught the very end of it, perhaps, or just a part of it, and you now jump to conclusions. You rush to judgment. And, of course, it says here, what you have seen with your eyes, do not bring hastily to court. That is, just because you think something is wrong, maybe investigate it a little bit further. Use some wisdom. Because if you go to court and you say, well, this person did this, and then you're refuted and it's shown that you really we're jumping to conclusions, as it says here, you're going to be humiliated, right? You're going to be put to shame. 
So that's one of those things we need to do. We need to be a little bit more patient before we bring accusations against others, especially in court. Amen? So don't rush to judgment against someone else. Verses 9 and 10, if you argue your case with a neighbor, do not betray another man's confidence, or he who hears it may shame you, and you will never lose your bad reputation. Now, this is great because so many times I'll, I'll, I'll hear something happen or hear of something happening like an argument. And, you know, people will get into it. They'll argue. And then someone will pull this. They're like, well, so-and-so agrees with me. Or, well, you know what I heard? So-and-so told me in confidence off the record. What you're doing is you're taking someone's words and words they specifically told you not to share, perhaps, or things that really was were said in confidence, and you're using them to argue your case against someone else. The reason you would gain a bad reputation is because now you can't be trusted with information. As someone said, I, I really don't want this shared with anyone else. And then you come to the pastor and say, well, pastor, you know, I don't know if you know this, but they told me in confidence. I will stop them right there and say, no, 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 no. A gossip alert. <clears throat> gossip alert. I don't want to hear something that was said in confidence. Have you, or do you have, the permission to share what you're sharing? Have they said to you, please feel free to share what I told you? You know, I have a, a friend, uh, Pastor Scott, who I love the way he handles this. If someone comes to him and gossips to him, he tells them, I'm going to give you like two days to tell that person what you told me. Or I'm going to tell them. Like, he's pretty rough, and I like that. So you don't want to tell him gossip because he's going to turn around on you. He's going to say, now you have to confess your sin. <laughs> or I'm going, to, I'm going to out you for what you tried to do. And if you know Scott, he's a very loving guy. But I like that about him. Very black and white. And that's a good way to handle it. You know, if someone's telling you something in confidence, it's probably a good idea to say to them, hey, what you just did was gossip. And the only way to make it right is to go to that person and tell them what you said. That's a good, good, good way to handle things. I like that. So... Don't betray the confidence of others or expose them publicly. If I were to say something to you privately and I specifically told you, listen, please don't share this, uh, and you did, that would be a violation of that principle. It's one of the reasons I don't put things like that in a text or an email. That will come back to haunt you. I had a sixth grade, no, no, it wasn't sixth grade. It was a sophomore, sophomore year in high school. I had a, a teacher who I remember her telling us that she was our English teacher. She said, never put something in writing that you don't want to last forever. Because once it's put in writing, it does. It does. And especially emails. Oh, my goodness. That's like nowadays we have to say, don't ever take a picture of yourself or someone else that you don't want to last forever, right? Because now we have the Internet and this, all this stuff that people can upload on Facebook and Instagram. You know, it becomes eternal. It will never, ever go away. So you will never, as it says here, you will never lose your bad reputation. So think about that. Okay, another area of life has to do with things we say. Verse 11, I like this. A word aptly spoken is like apples of gold in settings of silver. Now, I'm not really into jewelry necessarily, but I know there's some people who like jewelry. And this sounds like a really beautiful piece of jewelry. Apples of gold in settings of silver. A word aptly spoken, again, not a contrast, but a comparison. A word aptly spoken is like apples of gold and settings of silver. Very beautiful, right? And what this tells us to do 
is choose our words carefully. The words that come out of our mouth should be like a beautiful piece of jewelry. It shouldn't be like a hot poker from the fireplace or a grenade. The words we say should be like something very impressive and beautiful to behold. Measure your words. Choose them carefully. And I think that's a wonderfully poetic way to say it. Verse 12, this is a good one as well. Like an earring, we're on this jewelry thing here, like an earring of gold or an ornament of fine gold is a wise man's rebuke to a listening ear. This paints a beautiful and poetic picture because, you know, typically you wear an earring right on your earlobe, right? And so the idea, it's a, it's a picture you don't easily forget. An earring of gold or, or an ornament of fine gold is, is a wise man's rebuke to a listening ear. So if you have a listening ear, you know, people look, oh, what, I like your earrings. Well, it's taking that jewelry and applying it to having the ability to listen to good counsel. Listen to wise counsel and listen to correction. It's like that earring. It, it makes your ear more effective. It really does if you listen. Oh, my goodness, how much trouble we could avoid if we just listened to good counsel. Amen? Verse 13, I think this really speaks to our jobs in verse 13. Notice it says, like the coolness of snow at harvest time is a trustworthy messenger to those who send him. He refreshes the spirit of his masters. Now notice that. It's a trustworthy messenger to those who send him. So if, if someone sends a messenger, that messenger works for the one who sent him. So it's not so much the message received as the fact that this person can be relied upon and trusted to deliver the message in, an in, in a way of integrity, in an integral way. So like the coolness of snow at harvest time, let me explain this. Harvest time was the time of work, generally in the fall. And you would think, oh, you don't want snow at harvest. But the idea is to have a nice, cool day. Like, there's things that I'm doing right now outside because the weather is just a little bit cooler. It's not 80 degrees, right? And so there's things I can get done outside because the weather's more comfortable. So, like, as it says, the coolness of snow at harvest time, very refreshing, very comfortable, is a trustworthy messenger to those who send him. He refreshes the spirit of his masters. This has to do with being a very good employee or servant. This has to do with being diligent in your service to God and to others, and to those who pay you. So being a diligent servant, well, that's the effect you would have upon those that pay you. When they know they can trust you, right? When you have a boss that says, hey, listen, I'm leaving early, just lock up, take care of everything. Believe me, that is such a blessing to someone who's a business owner or a boss, to know they have good people they can trust. So that's an encouragement to be diligent in serving your employer, actually serving God as well. Okay, verse 14. Like clouds and wind without rain is a man who boasts of gifts he does not give. I can remember as a kid, we used to watch the Jerry Lewis telephone. I think it was on for like days, if I remember correctly, and they tried to raise money. And uh, I remember they would have that clock or that, that, that number on the, on the screen, and they would keep track of how much money had been pledged. And at the time, as a child, they didn't understand that a pledge doesn't mean you've actually paid that money. You know, nowadays it's different because now with the technology we have, people pledge. They can actually kind of pay right on the spot. But back then you would pledge, and then the idea is you would send the money in. So I'm going to give $10,000. And so the 
the number would increase by 10,000. I'm going to give it on the phone. You t- you'd say you'd give it. That doesn't mean you would, right? Pledges don't necessarily translate into payment all the time. I think we all know this, right? So what we're being told here is to fulfill the promises that you make and keep your commitments. I think that's one of the problems our society has. People make promises very quickly, but they don't always fulfill them. And like clouds and wind without rain, you look at the clouds, oh, good, it's going to rain. Oh, it's windy, it's going to rain. And it doesn't, and you need the rain, and you don't get it. It's like a man who boasts of gifts he doesn't give. So if you've promised to give something, either to a ministry or... uh, We don't do pledging here, by the way. We don't do fundraising here at the church. But certain ministries need to in order to survive. You know, that's what they do. They're doing outreach. They're doing missions. And if you say, oh, I'm going to give to ISC or I'm going to give to Straight Path Ministries or Compassion and Action or whatever, and, and, and then you say, yeah, you know, I'm going to, most of them, I'm sure, are wise enough not to bank on that until it shows up. But there are a lot of people who say one thing and do another. And I think it's very important. You take that principle in a larger way. There's too many people that commit to doing something and don't follow through. I played tennis for a very brief time in my life, but I remember one thing. The most important thing was to follow through. All right, verse 15. We read in verse 15, through patience a ruler can be persuaded and a gentle tongue can break a bone. Now That's not meant to be taken literally, but it makes its point. A bone, very hard to break, right? But notice a gentle tongue, that is the words that come from your mouth if they're persuasive, as it says, if you're using patience, if you're approaching people in a persuasive way, a diplomatic way, if you're diplomatic and persuasive with your authority, you're going to be effective. This is to use tact and discretion. If you have a case and you need to go to your authority, whether it be your boss or uh, whether it be a ruler or someone in court, and your approach is to speak to them gently, to speak to them with patience, you're going to be far more effective than if you start screaming your head off. By the way, it gets me angry when I go to a store and I see someone or a restaurant and I see someone trying to help someone and, you know, the person's irate and getting upset. You know, that's not effective. <clears throat> hardly. It is hardly effective. In fact, it probably makes things uh, worse. And so it's something to think about. Be diplomatic and persuasive in your dealings with others and especially those in authority over you. Here you go, verses 16 through 17. This is, this is, you got to really think about some of these. If you find honey, eat just enough, too much of it, and you will vomit. The idea is too many sweets, you're going to get sick. That, that's a fact, right? We know that. But notice, here's the comparison. Seldom set foot in your neighbor's house too much of you, and he will hate you. Do you see the poetic comparison? If you eat too much sweets, you're going to get sick. You don't want to spend so much time in someone else's house that they get sick of you. That's, that's a very poetic way of saying it. But don't impose upon the generosity of others. You know, if someone has invited you to their home, let's say a summer barbecue or a holiday party, one of the things I follow a couple of protocols here, and, and this is based in our culture, certainly. Uh, first of all, if, if it starts at 8, I show up at 10 after, maybe 10, uh, 15 minutes after. I don't show up right at 8 o'clock. I don't want to be that first guy there, you know, showing up that fashionably late, you know. But I, I just kind of, I don't want to be that guy that certainly don't want to be the guy that's 10 minutes early, right? So try to get there on time or give them a few minutes to settle in. And then I look around, and when I see people starting to leave, I'm out. 
I don't like to be that guy. Better that they say, hey, listen, where are you going? No, stay, don't worry about it. Than be like, you know, when is this guy going to leave? You know, I remember back in SNL back in the 70s when you actually could watch it. Uh, there was this, these fake commercials they did. It was the thing that wouldn't leave. The thing that wouldn't leave. And it was like John Belushi and he just kept staying there and he wouldn't leave. And they're like, oh, you know, we got to go to work in the morning. And it was like, oh, that's okay. I'll just watch a couple more TV shows. And the thing that wouldn't, you don't want to be the thing that wouldn't leave. Keep that in mind. You know, you really don't want to impose upon the generosity of others. But I like the way it said it. Just like honey will make you sick. Too much is a good thing, but too much of it. You get sick, well, too much of you can make others sick. So just remember that. Okay, verse 18. This is interesting. Like a club or a sword or a sharp arrow is the man who gives false testimony against his neighbor. Now, those are weapons, lethal weapons. But do you realize that lying about someone else is a lethal weapon? Your false testimony could actually end up in someone being incarcerated find or even put to death so lying about someone don't wound your neighbor that's what you're doing to them don't wound your neighbor by lying about them think about it that way when you lie about someone else you slander them you're wounding them spiritually speaking that is what you're doing verse 19 like a bad tooth or a lame foot is reliance upon on the unfaithful in times of trouble now, the bad tooth would be like you're chewing an apple and, you know, you have a problem with your tooth. You're relying on that tooth, but you really can't. So you have to go to the other side of your mouth because that tooth is, is in bad shape. You need to go to the dentist, right? So you can't rely on the bad tooth. If you have a lame foot and you step on it and you put your weight on it, it's going to be uncomfortable. It's going to bring pain. So the bad tooth, the lame foot, that's the same thing, at least metaphorically speaking, as relying on someone who's unfaithful, someone who can't be trusted in times of trouble. When you need to rely upon them, they're not there for you. You might as well have a tooth you can't chew with or a foot you can't walk with. That's a very poetic way of telling us, don't rely on those who have proven unreliable. You know, when someone says to me, oh, you know, I was waiting for so-and-so was supposed to take me to the airport and they never showed up. I'm like, well, is this the first time it happened? No, they always do this. Well, fool me once, you know. Shame on you. Fool me twice. Shame on me, right? I mean, wait a minute. You know, like, if this person is unreliable, once I learn someone has that rep, they're unreliable, I, I don't rely on them. Let's put it that way. And I think that's what that really is trying to tell us. Verse 20. Like one who takes away a garment on a cold day, or like vinegar poured on soda, is one who sings songs to a heavy heart. Now, of course, vinegar poured on soda is going to, if you've ever done this in your drain, uh, if you've got a clogged drain, a grass uh, or a grease clog in your, in your kitchen sink, they'll tell you baking soda and vinegar, you pour it down there, it, it can clean it out. So the idea, it's, it's very caustic, or, or at least it, it brings a reaction, right? But taking away a garment on a cold day, that's not a pleasant experience either. So what does this mean? Someone who sings songs to a heavy heart. So here you are celebrating. Oh, I just got a promotion. Oh, I'm in love. Oh, everything's great. And you're talking to someone who maybe just lost a family member or just broke up or is going through a really horrible divorce. And here you are celebrating. You know, you're supposed to cry with those that are crying and celebrate with those that are celebrating. As Paul talks about, he he became all things to all men. How sensitive are you? Ask yourself this question. Am I sensitive? You know, nothing feels worse than when you were insensitive. And you didn't realize that? 
You know, you're saying something to someone and all of a sudden you see they're upset and you say, I'm sorry, are you okay? I didn't mean to say anything. And then they say, well, no, I, I know you didn't know, so it's okay, but, you know, I just lost my dad or I just lost my brother or something. I mean, you're like, oh, my goodness, I'm so sorry. But if you know they're suffering and you're all happy and everything like that, you know, it's like that reaction with the baking soda and the vinegar. It's like the uh, taking a, a garment from someone. You're making them feel really uncomfortable. That's the idea. So don't do that, right? Don't be inconsiderate of those who are suffering around you. Be considerate. Verses 21 through 22. If your enemy is hungry, give him food to eat. If he is thirsty, give him water to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head, and the Lord will reward you. Notice, if your enemy, the implication, hey, we all have people who don't like us. We all have enemies. So how do we deal with this? Jesus told us, he really took this theme and expounded upon it. Listen, there are people that we consider enemies. Maybe at work, maybe family members, maybe your next door neighbor, someone who lives in your building. There are people that you clearly are your enemies. They don't like you. Maybe because you're a Christian, they don't like you. Maybe just because they don't like your face. I don't know what it is. They don't like you. They're your enemies. So how do you deal with that? Jesus told us to love our enemies and pray for those that despitefully use us, right? What does that look like? What does that mean? You know, well, it doesn't mean to be a doormat. It doesn't mean to be dumb about it. But it does mean that you're going to try to win them over as opposed to beat them to a pulp. Okay? And how do we win people over? Well, using kindness and compassion will hopefully, not always, certainly, bring your enemies to repentance. Now, there are times where this can't be employed. This is certainly a generalization. But if you have an enemy, now, listen, if your enemy is a terrorist, I don't suggest uh, you approach it this way, okay? Uh, Giving them food and, and, and drink in those situations would be inappropriate, right? But people have read this and said, heaping, burning coals on their head it's almost like they read it and they think, I'm going to get this guy. You know, I'm going to get him. I'm going to be so nice to him. I'm going to kill him with kindness. That's not, that's not the heart of Jesus. That's not what it's saying. Heaping burning coals, that's a reference to repentance. See, the, the Jews and the ancient peoples, when they would repent, they would literally throw coals or ash on their head. They would repent in sackcloth and ashes. They would take the ashes and put them on their head. It was a way of saying, I, I'm sorry, I repent. So you see what we're being told here poetically is to use kindness and compassion to bring our enemies to repentance. Hopefully, they'll see by your good works, they'll be convicted and they'll repent. That's the idea. So anyway, we get to the third of three themes. The first was showing respect to our authority. The second, we've just finished applying wisdom to all areas of our life. Finally, in the last few verses... You know, our character is important, and it affects all those around you. That is, who you are affects everyone around you. It affects your family members. It affects the people you work with. It affects everyone around you. And your character is what's spoken about in verses 23 through 28. In verse 23, As a north wind brings rain, so a sly tongue brings angry looks. So that's, let's keep going a little bit. Verse 24, better to live on a corner of the roof than share a house with a quarrelsome wife. We've seen this before. This isn't the first time we've seen that proverb. 
And verse 25 says, like cold water to a weary soul is good news from a distant land. Now, all these verses, I just want to kind of break them down. The first in verse 23, as a north wind brings rain, so a sly tongue brings angry looks. Uh, That should be pretty obvious. What's the way you speak? We've talked a little bit about it before. The way you speak to others. A sly tongue is going to bring something not so good for you, you know? Notice it says there, as the north wind brings rain, you can count on it. North wind blows, you're going to get rain, and you're going to get angry. It looks maybe worse. If you say things that you shouldn't say and things you shouldn't say in the way that will hurt people, okay? Uh, we, we read verse 24. Verse 24 Better to live in a corner on a roof than to share a house with a quarrelsome wife. I shared this the last time we saw this proverb, which is repeated here. Uh, there have been uh, times when uh, I have had to go on my roof. And when you get to the corner of your roof, it's a very uncomfortable place. I only have a one-story home, but still, not my favorite place to be, the corner of a roof. So the idea is this. You don't want to be around people like that, if you can help it. They make you feel uncomfortable. And a quarrelsome wife or a quarrelsome husband or a quarrelsome children, people that are always causing strife and conflict, listen, watch the way you treat those that you live with. You don't want to be that person. You know, you can be a man and be like that quarrelsome wife. You can be that quarrelsome husband. You can be that quarrelsome child. You can be that annoying person that whenever you're around, everyone is uncomfortable. Watch the way you treat those you live with, those that you're around. And verse 25 says, like cold water to a weary soul is good news from a distant land. Now, this is interesting because cold water to a weary soul is wonderful. And so is good news from a distant land. These are good things. Okay, that's a truth. But what does that mean for us? How do we apply that? Look, look for opportunity. Look, this is a truth. Apply the truth. Look for opportunities to encourage one another. Look for opportunities. If, if that's true that good news from a distant land is encouraging, like cold water to a weary soul, then be the person that brings cold water to a weary soul. Bring the person that brings good news, the gospel even, which is what good news mean, uh, gospel means, good news, uh, even the gospel or good news from a distant land. Be the messenger of good things. All right? Then we get to verse 26. Like a muddied spring or a polluted well is a righteous man who gives way to the wicked. Now, that would be a horrible thing, you know, for a well to become muddied, because then you can't drink it, right? What's the, what's the message? Don't allow yourself to be corrupted. If you are, as it says here, a righteous person, you give way to the wicked, you've become corrupted. Don't allow yourself to be corrupted. That's the message there. Verse 27, it is not good to eat too much honey. We're back to that again, right? Sweets. They didn't really have candies per se, but honey was, was and is about as sweet as it gets, right? It is not good to eat too much honey, nor is it honorable to seek one's own honor. Now we get back to that idea of your ambition. Live a life of humility that is void of ambition. I, I like the way that honey is used to describe bad behavior Because too much of something is bad behavior. And seeking your own advancement is bad. And we're told there to live a life of humility, void of ambition. Finally, verse 28, like a city whose walls are broken down is a man who lacks self-control. Now, the walls around a city protected that city, kept that city safe, made that city secure. And if you live a life of discipline and self-control, 
you have those walls around you. But if you don't, it's like the walls are broken down and you're not secure. All types of terrible things can happen. I'm sure you know this if you leave your car door open. You know, if you park out here, and I, we've never had any incidents, but I wouldn't suggest you leave your car door open ever, not even at home. They, the police told us one time we got a bullet, and, and we live in a nice town, but they said there have been some cars being stolen, and almost all of them were cars that people were leaving the key fob in. You know, rather than take it in the house, they just leave it in the glove compartment. They'd leave the car open. Uh, that wouldn't make a whole lot of sense, would it? And yet we live our lives like that. We live ourselves open to too many things that can destroy us. So living a life of discipline and self-control is what will protect you. Let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for giving us the wisdom that we can live by, this wonderful wisdom that helps us to understand how to apply your truth. You've given us some great poetry, but that poetry helps us to understand. And as we've looked at those themes, as, as we've looked at uh, showing respect to our authority and applying wisdom and, and how important our character is as it affects all those around us, those themes are, were put in these Proverbs. These Proverbs were grouped together to communicate those three things. May we apply them to our hearts. And Lord, the most important thing, like that good news from a far country, the most important thing is the good news of the gospel. As we not only share it, but as we remember it, that Christ came and died on the cross for our sins rose again on the third day, coming again to judge the living and the dead. And that too many has received him, to those that uh, relied upon his name and gave their hearts to him, uh, to as many as received him, he gave them the right to be called the children of God. And Lord, we desire to be your children by faith. So I pray that every heart would be stirred with that truth and respond to it in Jesus' name. Amen.